Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, The Mormon Wellness Project, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you, and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States, and go towards keeping the podcast alive. Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great programs. Helping you navigate Mormonism one episode at a time. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Tim Burt, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Thank you, Bill. It's such a pleasure to be invited to be here. I'm good. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad to have you on. I wonder if you can start off, start us off, and, and I'll just give the listeners uh, kind of an idea. We, with all this stuff going on with the sex abuse scandal at the MTC, and now we have a second abuser being reported by Mormon Stories, uh, who who may not have done anything at the MT, uh, MTC, but but was the doctor there and is now serving uh, time uh, for sex abuse. He also served as a bishop in the church. It's, it's caused us all in Mormonism to have this conversation out loud about sex abuse generally, how the church handles it, whether that handling is appropriate or not. The, the Joseph Layton Bishop case, I think, has been uh, talked about to, to death. And I don't mean that it's not important because it is. But at some point, people will start to kind of tune out as they're hearing that conversation. We want to get away from that today. So here I am up front just telling you that we're not going to hash out the details of the Joseph Bishop case again. But what we are going to do is talk today about how Mormonism frames sexual abuse, how it handles it. And and Tim, the listeners will see from your uh, your bio as you share some of, of your um experience and the things that you're trained in, our listeners are going to get a feel that you are the the expert in this area, and we're just going to have an open conversation about what is a healthy way to handle um, creating a safe space where abuse is really extremely difficult to occur, and and also to talk about maybe where the church could improve and what it could do differently. Um, Tim, maybe start us off with that bio. Tell us a little bit about yourself and the the training and uh, education that you've had. Thank you, Bill. I'm a licensed professional counselor and also a licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm licensed in Georgia and Alabama. Um, I wouldn't say that I am the expert. There are many, many experts out there, but I certainly have a lot of of experience that um, gives me uh, some qualifications to make comments on this. I was the executive director of two different children's advocacy centers in, in Alabama, and Alabama is a state which started children's advocacy centers. They started in Huntsville. That's where the National Children's Advocacy Center was or is. I'm not, I was not that executive director, but a children's advocacy center is, a, is, a, is the community's best practice on a community response to child abuse. And it focuses a lot on child sexual abuse. It uh, involves police, um, uh, the prosecution, child protective services, mental health, medical, and, and victim advocacy, and uh, helps work through 
trained forensic interviewers to try to find out what happened to children. So um, I sat through a thousand cases of, of, of child abuse and in the interviews. And I'm also trained as a therapist in, in trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, which is one of the, the evidence-based practices that we use to help treat um, trauma in children and especially sexual, sexual abuse. And I do that. I do that in my private practice. And I also, you know, did work with victims and victims' parents uh, when I was the executive director and also for the portion of that time as a clinician. So I've also done a lot of mandated reporter training, uh, probably trained 10,000 people in understanding how to recognize and report abuse that were mandated reporters from school teachers to doctors to, to therapists to social workers. And um, I did that for many, many years. So there's certainly many other people in the church and in, in our field who know you know, as much or more than I do. Um, but, uh, I, I, I bring to the table, you know, a little bit of that experience and would like to, you know, share my opinion, at least from those things. Yeah. What I love about the advocacy groups that you've belonged to in these couple of States is that in, it sounds like, and, and again, you're welcome to speak to this, but it sounds like these States have said like, look, let's get some groups of people together and let's begin bouncing ideas off each other. And let's come up with a common best practices and it's not one person deciding like this is right or this is wrong, but rather a group of people kind of banging their heads together and figuring out like what's the best way to keep our kids safe. Um, maybe talk for just a moment about how how these two states and the organizations that you belong to came up with these best practices. Okay, let me talk in two areas. The uh, the Children's Advocacy Center movement, and in, in Utah it's called the Children's Justice Centers. Um, started in Huntsville, Alabama, and now there's a, a, a umbrella group called the National Children's Alliance that sets standards for children's advocacy centers across the country. And to be part of that group, you have to follow a set of standards that's put together. And it's by a, a big group of people. They're the, they include some of the, the most significant researchers and um, um, luminaries in the field of, of child abuse. And it's evidence-based, and each standard, each set, center has to come up with a um, with documents that each group, like the police, like the district attorney, the child protective services, medical, mental health, have to agree to sign on to a multidisciplinary agreement, an interagency agreement on how they'll investigate and treat child abuse in their community. What's the protocol? They'll have protocols on when, when you know, child protective services gets a call, how do they call police, how are they going to schedule an interview, who are going to be the trained forensic interviewers who interview the children, who's going to attend that interview, how do we make it so we don't have more than one interview, a child be interviewed multiple times by multiple play, by multiple people that in, impacts, how do we make sure that, you know, the child gets referred to mental health treatment and uh, professional competent trained medical evaluation for tr people who are trained to work with children, especially people. Um, prepubescent children, how do you get a, a medical exam for that in a timely fashion? How do we prepare kids for court? How do we help them through the whole process? And so each community that has done the work to create a children's advocacy center has done a lot of work on making the, the different agencies work together. And this is based on evidence-based practice. I mean, they came up with a new standard a number of years ago that therapists have to have training in, in evidence-based practice to do therapy for kids that um, have been traumatized. So it's not just sending, uh, having a therapist employed at the center or referring to a therapist in the community that just, you know, might be good with kids. They have to be trained in an evidence-based practice. And so 
any any community that wants to and, and any bishop or any church who wants to find out about how their community is is approaching child abuse if they should look, look to a children's advocacy center in their in their area now there are other organizations um churches professional societies and so forth that that look at, at other responses that not part of the official um you know police dhr or excuse me um um, child Protective Services, that's called DHR in Alabama, um, process. Now, you have all kinds of, of, um, of churches that have uh, safe sanctuaries, that have guidelines on how they're going to handle reporting and how they're going to handle training and uh, vetting people for working with children. And, you know, our church really doesn't have that kind of thing, a, a, very, a policy that's set out that's public that we can see. And so there are organizations that do that. There are other organizations like Prevent Child Abuse America, Stop It Now, and many others that do prevention work that uh, really have good programs out there. And so um, I believe that the church needs to, you know, come together and with professionals in the field, both outside and inside the church and, and really evaluate its, its, its program of, of reporting child abuse, of making our churches safe and um, putting in a policy that's available to the public that uh, we, can, we can follow on how to um, report and handle child abuse. Yeah, all that's beautiful. And I want to say, like, this, there's going to be parts of this episode that come off really critical to the church. And I think it's important because these, these kids matter. And whether we're talking children, whether we're talking youth, whether we're talking young men, young women, and for that matter, whether we're talking adult men or women, um, abuse is a serious matter. And if the church is not doing what would be understood today as the best measures to take, to prevent as well as to help these people when abuse occurs, then I think it's fair to be critical and to draw the conversation around what has to be done differently. I, I don't think any of us have to soften that conversation. And, and I want to say into what you just said, Tim, is this idea that the church has claimed in the past to be the gold standard in how it handles this issue. And what you've pointed to is in in these other these other states where they have these advocacy programs, that in these advocacy programs, a lot of different people with a lot of diff- different expertise and perspectives and education got together and said, hey, what's the best way in which we can handle these things? And when I look at Mormonism, I see something very different, which I see um, 15 leaders at the top of Mormonism who are simply by their their careers not in this field. They they are not um, children advocacy uh, experts. They they didn't work in this field. They don't have that kind of expertise. And and I'm sure they're asking for people who do to come in and share their thoughts. But at the end of the day, as we have this conversation, I hope the listeners can see that the church is not implementing many of these safeguards. Now, I, I want to give you a moment, Tim, to talk about Sam Young, because I think it sets up the conversation. The The church, because of this recent abuse um, scandal at the MTC with Joseph Bishop, the church has been releasing statements, and just over the weekend, it releases this newest one, which reiterates essentially its old uh, mechanisms for handling and preventing abuse, 
as well as adding a few clarifications in, such as we should not recommend that someone stay in an abusive relationship, uh, that we that um, members and it, and it kind of imposes that it's only children and women, but that members can ask for a third person to be in the room, and that anytime there is uh, a single person uh, teaching a class, a, a solo member teaching a class, that it should be at least thought about and talked about to combine those classes or to have two people in there so that that does not happen. Um, but generally speaking, all of their other protocols are kind of what they've already done in the past. And I want to give you a moment to talk about Sam Young because there's this march on Friday, and I'm hoping this episode will come out before then. There's this march on Friday to stand up for the children uh, and and to to seek out encouraging the church to make changes that are definitively more helpful than where it currently stands. Maybe for just a moment, talk about Sam Young and and what he's doing, and then let's jump into how the church handles abuse and where things could be different. Great, um, Sam Young is a friend of mine, and actually, I have some recommendations on on how individuals in the church can approach their local uh, church leaders and try to make a change on their local level, as I have, and um, on his website. Sam is, is leading a, a march on, on Friday, the 30th of, of March 2018, um, to the church office building to present, um, I believe, over 50,000 signatures on his petition, which predominantly asks for two things. One, for no one-on-one adult child interviews. Um, And secondly, to end the process of asking sexually explicit questions to youth um, and the idea basically of worthiness interviews for youth. Those are the two requests. And um, I support Sam um, wholeheartedly. I believe that, you know, that movement is necessary in moving the church from a place where we're one of the few religious organizations in the country who still allows closed door behind, you know, one-on-one in, um, interviews with between adults and youth and where the issues of chastity, sexuality, um, sometimes masturbation, sometimes abuse, sometimes sexual experience are are discussed and where, you know, consequences are given to youth for um, many times what's normal um, sexuality and where these bishops just are not trained to be able to deal with those kind of questions. Um, and when we come from the Trump perspective, it's even very apparent that the bishops really are out of their league. Um, so it's it's an important march. Now, the church's release um, um, on Monday that changes a few things is a very tiny step you know, in a, in a positive direction, but it doesn't answer um, what Sam's requests are. They're going to be, allow a person to be invite to invite another adult into the room if they want one, but it doesn't say that there will be no one-on-one. It doesn't say anything about um, these these worthiness questions, asking sexual questions to youth. Now, the temple recommend. We've heard that Temple recommend there's specific questions you're supposed to ask, but with children there on these youth interviews, um, there is no standard on what to ask. They can ask anything they want. And so the problem is that you have bishops or roulette and bishops are asking, you know, a, a, an eight-year-old, do you live the law of chastity? And they say, well, what's that? And then 
um, or do you masturbate or all these kind of things. And, and those are, are, we believe are very destructive. Excellent. So with, with Sam having organized this March on, on Friday and with all that's gone in into that, and I think it's important and I, and I hope that people, when they saw the church's response, I hope people didn't go, Oh, okay, great. They're fixing it. No need to go on Friday. Cause I think they're like you say, it's, I put a post out on Facebook. Yes, it's a positive step. Yes, this is great. But it is a drop in the bucket compared to where we need to get to if we're really serious about protecting our children, our youth, and our young adults. Um, and, and I'll add women and men, um, older men and women as well, because I think there's lots of types of abuse that occur in, in these types of um, just say high yeah. demand fundamentalist religion. Right. So – in in this conversation, I want to frame it this way. Let's start off talking a little bit about the way in which the church, the mechanisms it has that you and I having this conversation feel contribute maybe to an unsafe space specifically for kids and youth, young adults. And, and let's talk about uh, that first, and then let's kind of move into where we could be better or what we could do different. And, and I would love to get, especially as we get towards the end, I'd love to get some of the easily, um, the, the changes that would be easily adaptable to that your, the advocacy groups that you've worked with in the past, the things that they've come up with, the things that, that as a group they've decided, like, this is the healthiest way to handle this. And, and I want to talk for a moment, maybe starting off with kind of a lay ministry Mormonism is one of the few churches that has an untrained lay ministry. And for an Orthodox member, there's so much that goes into our minds about how, you know, these men are called of God, they've got authority. And so we don't really think of them as needing any specific kind of training. Even our leaders have said in the past, they don't, you know, our leaders don't need any specific kind of training. They've got the Holy Ghost and the Spirit of Discernment. But let's talk for a moment about a lay untrained ministry and, and maybe your thoughts there on, if I can be blunt, the inadequacy of these these men serving as bishops, serving as stake presidents, serving as a counselor to bishopric or stake presidency in having these interviews and, and maybe not being trained on boundaries or um, – the ethics of that kind of a conversation. Any thoughts you have maybe there? Sure. We put a bishop in a very difficult situation. Also his counselors, stake presidents, stake presidency members of having to evaluate for the church, a person's worthiness to be advanced in the priesthood, to be, you know, baptized, to have a calling, to go to the temple and so forth. Um, and we have kind of taught for many years, and our teachings about chastity and, and issues around sexuality have changed. And if we walked it, they've changed a lot over the years. But we don't have a definitive standard on what we expect of, of people. We use all these, you know, antiquated languages like, you know, are, are you morally clean? Are you chaste? Do you live the law of chastity? Do you, you know, are you... Are, are, are you being uh, modest? Um, are you preventing, you're not necking or petting? I mean, I don't, kids nowadays have no idea what that means. We're not able to even talk about what, the use language that, that, that makes sense to adults 
about these these issues. Now, what happens is that you know these bishops think that they have the spirit to help them decide what to do, but they have no experience with trauma. Um, one in four girls are sexually abused before their 18th birthday. You know, one in five to eight boys are. So in every congregation, one in four boys and girls are physically abused before their 18th birthday. So in every congregation, there are victims of child sexual abuse and physical abuse, both as adults and as youth. And so when somebody is um, abused, the child abuse accommodation syndrome, or what we know about victims is victims are unlikely to tell right away. They're unlikely, when they're young enough, they're not even likely to understand that it was abuse. Sometimes the abuser can be the person that gives them the most attention of anybody else in their lives. And so they really need that adult connection. The adult connection is more important than anything else. They may be willing to keep it secret, to accommodate to what's happening, and, and to not protest. Now, we that don't have an ex- anybody that doesn't have experience with child abuse, well, why wouldn't a child say anything about it? We couldn't understand. But now in society, we're beginning to understand that most kids don't tell, at least not right away. When they do tell, it's usually later on, and it's, and it's, a, it's a little bit at a time. It's, a, it's an unconvincing and a tenuous um, disclosure. And that, the tenuousness of the disclosure is related directly to how close the perpetrator is to the child's life. So it's dad or mom or brother. That's a really close relationship. It's really hard for the kid to say about that. If it's some person that they don't ever know, that they've never met that's happened, then it's a lot easier to tell. But the stranger danger is not what we're we're worried about. There's very little stranger danger, truthfully. Your child is safer with some random person on the street than they are with somebody at Thanksgiving dinner. Um, so the, the reality is that, that kids, when they do disclose, sometimes if, if they feel like that bad things are happening or if the threats the perpetrator told them are, gonna, are, are coming true or they realize that people don't believe them or they feel shame about this um, or the, the adults don't respond well, they will recant. And that's very common in, in child sexual abuse investigations, that you'll have a child when all kinds of pressure comes on. Oh, no, no. And so... Children don't usually lie about abuse, about saying that someone abused them when they didn't. But there is a lot of, you know, difficulty in in a child being able to tell even what happened to them or even understanding what happened to them. And for us as adults to understand what happened. That's why we need trained forensic interviewers in children's advocacy centers and other places to even interview these children to find out what happened. Because just a normal um, cop on the street doesn't have the skills to evaluate a child to figure out what they're saying is actually a, um, you know, a, a disclosure or not a disclosure without um, potentially compromising the case. So when a child comes in, with a, a teenager comes into a bishop and says, you know, he says, well, you're living the law of chastity. And she says, well, I think so. Well, you know, they prepare for a mission interview now. And this new mission interview standards are really difficult because it asks them to really delve into anything they've ever done. You know, has someone ever touched you? Well, yeah, someone touched me. Well, okay, did you repent of that? Well, the bishop may not know to ask whether, you know, she was six years old and it was her, you know, adult babysitter or something like that. And so we're not able, trained to deal with trauma. Um, We're not trained, they're not trained to deal really well with with domestic violence, they're not trained to deal with sexual assault. Someone goes on a date as a as a college student, and you know, and there's maybe some drinking going on, and she doesn't want to have sex, but then 
you know, he forces himself upon her. She goes into what we call fight, flight, freeze. In freeze, literally, there are places where your your voice and your body doesn't work. It's actually stuck, like a person up on a high wire that or a high place that can't move. Um, they literally can't say anything. So um, they they may blame themselves. Now it's not always just freeze that requires this. I mean, people being pressured into something, and then something sexual happens. She's not sure if it's rape or not. She goes in and confesses it to the bishop. The bishop assumes that this is consensual. They don't have the ability to to comprehend what's one versus what's another. And by them saying, hey, you need to repent of that, it really hurts the victim. Now, my goal is to have bishops and state presidents understand these things, not because so they can be better at determining what was abuse or not abuse, but to understand how out of their depth they are. And when these kind of issues come up to refer, refer, refer to competent therapists in or out of the church, in the community that are trained to deal with these things and to not, um, to, to not assume that they have the spirit of discernment to help them to understand what was one versus the other. The spirit of discernment doesn't teach them what the basics of child sexual abuse or sexual assault or domestic violence are. You have to learn that themselves. Right. And I, and I want to say, you're hitting on it, the, the trouble is that the church sets these leaders up as not only the first line of defense, but we have numerous talks and instruction where these men are told that they will have the revelation and insight needed in order to give answers to all of these kinds of problems and issues. And and yes, there is a double message. Yes, the church also says that these bishops have a right to refer these members to professional counseling, for instance. But the trouble is we have to get rid of the double message. Um, I'm, I'm A lay ministry that is untrained to me, Tim, seems not... I mean, you're pointing to this deep inadequacy at handling these issues. They... They've never had training on, again, unless this leader came from this background into the calling, if it's a farmer from Kaysville, if it's an electrician from Detroit, if it's a uh, plumber from uh, Montana, whatever the career that that bishop or stake president had in his life, 90-something percent of these leaders have never been trained on what are healthy boundaries. They've never been uh, trained on what, uh, how to spot abuse, how to handle abuse, what is abuse, what isn't. Like, as you're pointing out, they have zero insight, experience, ability to navigate these issues. And as you also point out, this episode, for instance, is not to inform these leaders so that they can handle these issues. It's to show how deeply inadequate these leaders are, and hence they should never be doing anything with these issues except referring these folks on to professionals. But the trouble is that Mormonism has set itself up in a way to say like, hey, we've got the Holy Ghost. Our leaders have the spirit of discernment. Hence, we have the ability to get answers straight from God which is better than all the world's answers on how to handle essentially anything. And as you're pointing out, in terms of a lay ministry, they're just not qualified, and that message has to change. Correct? Absolutely. And the messaging that the church came out with 
No, there are a few good things in preventing responding to abuse the church came out with um, a couple of days ago here in March of 2018. But um, in part of it, it talks about how, how we're responding to abuse. And on page three, it says, you know, church leaders should fulfill legal obligations in reporting abuse to authorities. Per, you know, and I say, well, personally, you know, and we'll talk about reporting in a minute if you want. The next one is church leaders should help those who have committed abuse to repent and cease their abusive behavior. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I, I am, you know, trained in working with child victims. I am not certified in actually working with offenders. So I'd have to have additional training, despite all I know, to work in rehabilitating and working with offenders. And so there's no way that a church leader can can help um you know, then cease their behaviors and evaluate that. The problem also, Bill, is we've got two investigations that are happening here. We've got an investigation or an assessment that's happening on, you know, was the person abused? Do they need help outside? Do they need to report it to the police? You know, how can they get out of a domestic violence situation? What can they can do externally? Then we have an evaluation of how does the behavior that they've engaged in or someone else has engaged in um, on them affect their worthiness, their status in the church. And so that that is not an external thing. You're not going to refer to law enforcement. And 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 with this bishop case, you know, the church said, well we we trust the the local you know the 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 child abuse um and uh, well they not the child abuse, but we have trust law enforcement and the legal system to figure out the truth of this matter. Well the problem was it's already it had already gone to limits of uh, statute of limitations and we're not she wasn't asking about the external things. She was asking about what happened internally. So what happens internally? How do we release somebody for pulling someone out of the calling so that, you know, they can't be around children anymore and before an investigation is complete? How do we assess whether a child is worthy to, you know, be advanced in the priesthood or something like that? So the, the, the church has set itself up to try to evaluate someone's worthiness. And, and to a certain extent, it has to protect and say, hey, you can't be in callings related to children. That, that's part of its issue. But it's, a, it's those, the ecclesiastical responsibility, the protection of the church responsibility and the external environment are conflated. Yeah. Again, lay leaders, you're, you don't have the experience, the training, the understanding, the wherewithal to navigate all this. And regardless of how much the church says that you are the first line of defense and it's and and you have the gifts and abilities to navigate these issues, flatly, flatly you don't. I, I want to hit on a couple more of these kinds of concepts that we've set up within the church, have you kind of speak maybe for a moment on these. Um, the next one is is a big issue with, with Sam Young and, and the things that he's trying to encourage the church to think about. But the idea of asking kids sexual questions, especially from a stranger, um, maybe talk for a moment about, if you want to, boundaries or uh, what having... You mentioned earlier, I'll point this out. You mentioned earlier not subjecting these kids to multiple conversations around this abuse. And yet in the church, we are asked to go in and evaluate someone's worthiness every every six months when it comes to these youth. And these bishops are given the space to essentially ask whatever they want to, if they feel like the spirit is directing them to do that. Um, your thoughts on the, uh, the negative, the negative 
space when we go into sexual questions with youth, maybe just, again, I don't know how to frame that, but maybe your thoughts on that issue. Sure. Well, as, as therapists that work with children, um, many therapists have very difficult time with the church asking children about um, sexual issues, especially when in, when some of the the framing of those issues in the past and even present, you know, has been very different than what we know is normal, natural, healthy, you know, sexuality in children. Um, 85% of children will be, have some sexual experience before their 13th birthday, you know, and, and some of that is very normative, you know, I show you mine, you show me yours, you know, what is, you know, what do I look like, you know, uh, understanding how their body works, understanding arousal, understanding, you know, um, orgasm, masturbation, those kind of things are very normal and healthy developmental processes that children go through to become from an infant to, you know, a functioning adult who can be in intimate sexual relationships. Some of those things, some of the church past and present narrative has shamed and created as sin. It's created as, as so forth. And so when we, when we, frame normative, developmentally appropriate behaviors as some kind of thing that is the sin next to murder. And, um, you know, that where where kids, even if they weren't called in for an interview, feel guilty until they have to go confess, and then they're held back from their mission or these kind of things. It can be very, very problematic much less the, the incidents of the many, many cho- children who have been sexually abused or assaulted or experienced violence or neglected in the home where the, you know, the complicated narrative is even more difficult here. So um, I just believe that you know, it would be better for the church to say, hey, do you want to be part of this church? Do you want to participate in young women's, young men? Would you like to, to, you know, to be baptized? Um, and being baptized means that we try to act more like Christ. Um, would you like to try to, to act better in your life? Yes or no? If yes, then go ahead. And, and maybe you don't even ask that question. Um, if they, they, they present the thing, they want to be baptized, we'll let them get baptized. We don't need to necessarily evaluate children on their, um, you know, basically those issues. Now, part of the problem is bishops, when they ask those questions, kids don't know the answer. I have a family member who didn't know what masturbation was and, and went after the bishop asked him and looked it up, asked all their friends, all their friends and their friends didn't know they looked it up, you know? And so there's lots of stories under Sam Young's thing we talked about earlier. And part of the problem is that there's so many stories of hurt coming out of this. And the church hasn't said, yes, our things have been hurtful. Yes. We've had a problem. Yes. We need to make a way that people can tell us how hurtful it has been. And we have bishops thinking they can do sex education for kids without the parents' permission or even in ways that, 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 you know, go way beyond the boundaries. And so, you know, as a bishop, you are a bishop. I mean, it may not be very comfortable asking these, these children these things, but the church kind of insists that you have to do it. So what we're looking for is complete rethinking of this whole narrative. You know, even if the church said, yeah, we need to ask if they, you know, they, they believe certain things before they can go to the temple, that could be given to the ch- to parents in writing in advance. And the parents could explain to the children that the children could say, yes, I'm willing to do all these things, you know, and put that in a sealed envelope back to the bishop. And yeah, good. You've got your temple recommend. You're on your way. There is no need to to, you know, 
to do that. And, and from the history of this, we learn that it's only since the 70s that, that children have really been asked these questions. So this isn't something that's always happened in the church. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, right. So as you're pointing out, the church has forever framed normal sexual development, major pieces of that as sin. And hence, when we have conversations with children or youth or young adults in which these lay untrained leaders talk about subjects of sexuality and frame normal sexual development as sinful behavior, like we just agree that's just not healthy, right? Like it doesn't, that doesn't help that, that person develop a normal sexuality, a normal view of themselves, a normal self-esteem. Um, it, it does damage in a thousand different tentacles, right? It goes off in many directions and can cause one to see the world, to understand oneself in ways that are not healthy. Absolutely. And we're not preparing, in this narrative, we're not preparing um, LDS um, children and young adults for what we think we are, a healthy marriage in which, you know, that the intimacy and, and raising children and so forth is, is part of the crowning achievement of what we're trying to work for. And, you know, the church, you know, tries to say that, what, you know, that's what we're looking for in the eternities to be able to, you know, have these kind of relationships. Well, so many faithful, faithful LDS youth who, you know, do not, participate in sexuality and so forth before they're married and they get married and they're completely unprepared for the marital relationships, even the ones that have never had problems. And so even for the, even for the youth who are following these directions, sometimes they're not well served. Um, and cause we're not teaching children, we're teaching children, you know, that some of these things are the sin next to murder. Now I think that that you could go through the theology and find that that's actually not right, but that's certainly in our culture. That's what's said. And, um, and so they feel really horrible about all of, all of these things. And they develop, they develop a sense of, of shame. We're shaming children around normal pieces. And so we we're not preparing them. Well, we're saying these things are thin. We're not, we're not teaching consent. We're not teaching how to consent. How it's oak that you can, as a as a five year old, say, I don't want to kiss Aunt, you know, Aunt Aunt Rudy, or Louie, or whatever her name is. Um, I don't want to hug her. It makes me feel uncomfortable. We're not supporting a child's decision to say, No, I can have boundaries around my body. I don't have to do something physical because it's going to make an adult, you know, you know, unhappy or disappointed or something. That when we don't teach consent about a child's body. When we say you have to go talk to this bishop, you know, of course you have to go talk to him. Well, I don't want to. Well, you have to. When we take away a child's ability to consent to what's happening to them, we set them up for times when someone else may be trying to take away their consent, um, where a a sexual abuser would groom them and take away their consent uh, around things. Um, We don't teach responsibility. Okay. We don't teach, you know, that, you know, use of sexuality is, it's a powerful thing. You need to be responsible about it. 
You need to be um, you, you need to be respectful in your interaction with others. Now, there's certainly good things we can teach children and youth around sexuality, around intimacy and relationships, but we almost don't need to teach them about child abuse. You know, we need to teach them about being, um, you know, someone um, trying to, you know, uh, um, sexual assault. We need to teach them about controlling relationships, you know, in domestic violence. That's not part of our curriculum, Bill. Um, we have so many messages that said over and over and over, you know, that, you know, pray, read your scriptures and so forth. These kids get those messages all the time. My son didn't want to go to youth night one time because he said, dad, they're just going to talk about masturbation. You know, and so he didn't want to go and I didn't want him to go either. But we what we could be doing in our programs is teaching kids the, about about consent, about respect, about responsibility, about, you know, difficult relationships with controlling this, about assault. We, we can be teaching our adults about that first and then find ways, you know, appropriately, developmentally appropriately to teach our children. And we're not doing it. And, and, and it's really hurtful, in, like you said, in a thousand different ways for kids. Even the people who have obeyed all the rules and all of the, the things, when they're married, all of a sudden, they're not prepared. They don't know their bodies. They don't know how to talk about things. They don't, um, you know, and there, there are just hundreds of stories. Read Sam Young's stories and other stories, and you can just see how in a hundred ways these can be hurtful. Yeah. Yeah, so as you point out, not only do we teach a deep unhealthiness around sexuality, but we also don't get into the the arena of teaching what are really important and healthy concepts. And again, this goes back to a lay ministry that is untrained and doesn't even these thoughts don't even cross the mind. I mean, when I was serving as a bishop, what you're saying, like if, if you and I would have had that conversation, I would have gone like, "Wow, that would be a really great fireside. It never crossed my mind to say such things because we put ourselves in a position that we're led by God and the world is getting it wrong. And hence, we never give our ear to the world and what it's saying. And hence, we never have these conversations around new ideas so that we can know like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a really good thing to to teach or to do. We're just not exposed to those things. And, and so, again, just to emphasize that... Um, this goes back to being a lay untrained ministry and that views on sexuality aren't healthy. I want to dive into the next one, which is this idea of being led by the spirit or having the spirit of discernment. And I, and I want to, I want to give the church credit. And you said this earlier, and we'll do this when we get to the church's response. There's a few things in here that are really good. And again, they're baby steps, but we want to give the church credit for the good things it's doing. Absolutely. Um, one of the, yeah, one of the things the church has done that's good um, in terms of this led by the Spirit, is there's been a few times and a few occasions where the church has stated the importance of sticking to the questions it has. Now, I know you and I have some feelings about those questions, but I think the the greater harm is done when the interviewer steps away from those questions and begins to ask for more details than what those questions are set up for. And the church on a few occasions has asked its leaders to stick to the questions as outlined. The trouble is that the church has also given a double message, which is to say that when directed by the Spirit, when the Holy Ghost indicates um, to, to 
then ask further probing questions to, uh, if, if the Holy Ghost tells you in your mind that this person isn't being honest about their answer, then feel free to delve in further. And I want you to talk for a moment about this idea in our faith of being led by God so that the thoughts inside our head are the mind and will of God, and hence it gives absolute permission to essentially ask anything in the danger in, and again, going back to an untrained lay ministry, but the danger really in anybody feeling free to ask anything and justify it. Um, Any thoughts you've got on that? Yes, Bill. One thing that we can think about is let's look at people who are not members of the church and never been members of the church. Do they feel some kind on occasion, a quickening of understanding of, of this aha moment of, wow, it just clicked. Um, do they have a sense of, well, I wasn't thinking about this and something came into my mind that, that now, you know, didn't really seem to come from, I'm not sure where it came from. Absolutely. So unfortunately what we have done, you know, and, and, and when we have a value system, it says, okay, um, let me just give you an example. When I was on my mission, for some reason, I thought that, you know, caffeine was really bad. And so I learned that chocolate had caffeine in it. And so I thought, well, maybe I shouldn't eat caffeine. Then on the way home from my mission, I stopped at the temple in London. And in the temple cafeteria, they had a big piece of chocolate cake. And I said, I'm eating it. You know, now the church never told me that chocolate was bad. But I kind of felt guilty when I ate chocolate thinking that I knew that because I, was, I wasn't being commanded in everything. I was going using my own sense. But then when the church gave me permission to eat chocolate cake, I was good. So I would have felt guilty eating something that was against my, my idea of my value system. And then when the when I saw the church have chocolate cake there, that it was like, okay, this is the answer. You know, I'm going too far. That was silly. I still I enjoyed that chocolate cake. And it, and so the reality is, I bring it back to each person has their sense of what's right and wrong based on our cognitive schema, on based on how we see the world. And that's not the same for every bishop, and not the same for every member of the church, even following the the the, the, the handbooks. And this sense of of feeling inspired. And feeling like a stupor of thought when you're when you're when you're going against your value system, we all feel that in and out of the church. So the church has co-opted normal psychological processes and claimed that there's some kind of source of external spiritual, you know, knowledge from God. So the question is, and you've done a session on that with your wood tools versus versus you know the the steel tools. How do you differentiate whether this is really from God or not? And, you know, if this person can't, you know, doesn't sense that they walk in the room, if they're supposed to evaluate and they're, they're the judge in Israel and have this, they shouldn't have to interview them at all. They shouldn't have to ask any questions at all. So obviously we're dealing with human processes here. Now, the church does need to be able to have a way to say, hey, you know, this is what our standards are. We'd like you to live it. And if there are people who are being accused of violating those standards, have a process to evaluate that. But I think that bishops and church leaders and individuals need to be very careful when we think that that something is, you know, direct knowledge from God um, and be able to figure out how that is. I'm not saying there isn't God doesn't inspire people and so forth at all. Not at all. But we can clearly see at different stages of life when we thought something was wrong and then we found out later that, hey, I was looking at it wrong, that I felt guilty of it before and I don't feel guilty about it now. 
And that can help us to understand that we're probably first dealing with cognitive schema rather than necessarily the ability to discern um, things from God. Right. So the idea that rather than thinking every unique thought in our head comes from a heavenly being and hence must be healthy and true, rather to step back and say that the, the far and wide majority of thoughts that we have inside our head come from within ourselves and they may be healthy, they may be true, they may not be healthy, they may not be true. And let's let's look into that further before we um, paint it with a broad brush as healthy and true and implement it into how we deal with other people. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, I think that what we're asking also, it, we're trying to do, you know, a, a bishop is trying to do pastoral care, and they're really trying to help people in their journey to find things that are meaningful in their lives and give them hope and purpose and, and direction. And, and, and in, in your life, in your story, Bill, you, you, you say that and that helped the church helped you immensely. And that is wonderful. Can't we just support that? Why don't we have to evaluate from some external thing whether they're okay? If they want to go to the temple and they feel like they're making progress toward it, what's the problem with them going to the temple? You know, if they want to be involved in, you know, if they would like to accept a calling as the Laurel's leader, you know, and they're willing to do that, why not let them do that? You know, now it's different when another church member comes to a bishop or a stake president and say, I would like to ask for a disciplinary council because this person raped me. And now, you know, he or she is in this big calling and they're around other children. That's when, you know, that's when discernment and that's when a, a process needs to be used to figure out whether there's worthiness when there's a complaint by someone else. And the church certainly needs a process to be able to deal with those things. And it can't necessarily just rely on, you know, law enforcement and, and the legal system to, to, to figure that out. And then we'll, we'll just take what they figure out later. And if you want to know why, I can tell you, you know, 40 reasons why that, that doesn't work. Yeah, that seems like an odd thing. The church said that, you know, we don't have the tools to figure out the truth of this matter, that law enforcement... Uh, we're going to lean on them to to decide, which seems to completely counter, again, this idea that Mormonism tells us that our leaders have the spirit of discernment, they've got the Holy Ghost. The other thing that threw me for a loop is that the church says to its leaders, if you come across abuse, the first thing you should do is call uh, our, our phone number that goes back to church headquarters that includes uh, our law firm and and. Um, our methodology for trying to resolve these issues, if in the end we truly do trust law enforcement over ourselves, it seems like reporting this to the police would be the right move. Um, I want to talk for a moment about reporting and, and this idea, and maybe just get your thoughts, because I, I'd like to hear what these advocacy groups that you've served with in the past, how they saw this issue. Um, we Within religion... We've set religion apart as something different in that it's when a, when a church leader, a local church leader has a conversation with somebody, there is this debate in our minds about what's confidential and what's not confidential, what is required to be passed on as information to protect others or that person, and what is, what is important to hold on to as private and not share. And in religion, to some extent, not 
completely unique in that, but to some extent unique. And the church has set it up so that when an abuse is suspected or admitted to, that what that church leader needs to do is then call the church and have the church um, understand how the, you know, explain to that leader how they should go about handling this suspected or admitted abuse, which I think points to the fact that this leader is ill-equipped to handle it on his own, which I frankly will admit full-heartedly. But I want to get your thoughts on what these advocacy groups thought was the healthiest way in which to handle reporting of sexual abuse in order for the number one priority to be protecting the victim. Okay. Let me start off by talking about training. Um, if someone is a clergy member or you know, a bishop, a counselor and a bishop, stake president and so forth in our church, in many or most states of the United States, I think all, all states of the United States, um, um, there are mandated reporting laws. Now, whether clergy is included in that state, that state's mandated reporting law and how that applies may vary from state to state. So like when the Boy Scouts of America, when they're putting together their policy, the local council has to find out what the law is in their, in their jurisdiction and train the scout executive on how to respond to that. So when a scout leader says, hey, I don't know what to do, I'm calling my, my scout executive, the scout executive knows what the law is. So each stake, each area in the country and in the world needs to know what the mandated report or the reporting law for clergy is in their jurisdiction. And so that training needs to be done, and, and, and the bishops or people that are being asked to do these kind of closed-door interviews need to know what, that, what the reporting requirement is. And it may be different by states, and that's, I think, what they're working, worried about we're calling the hotline. One thing about the hotline is maybe you know, the bishops, they haven't done that work to inform people about that because it's different in different areas. And so they supposedly have lawyers there in Salt Lake with Kirkland, Conkey, or whoever responds to the phone that, that knows that. Okay. The second thing is that, that mandated reporting for, for clergy is different and unique in any other kind of mandated reporting. So there's three types of reporters. There are permissive reporters. You and I, anybody in the world, is a permission reporter. We're allowed to call and report child abuse. We can call. You know, we can call law enforcement in the jurisdiction where it happened. We can call child protective services in the place where the child lives. We can report. There's nothing that tells us that it's against the law to report child abuse. Everyone's allowed to do it. Now, a mandated reporter, someone like a doctor or a therapist or a school teacher, is mandated to report if in their state or the country. They may be mandated to report child abuse, suspected child abuse, which means that if they come across information about child abuse, they personally, in most places, um, are required to report that to whatever the state says. Usually, it's law enforcement and child protective services. They're in, you know, in Alabama and in Georgia, they're required to report it immediately and follow it up. They're encouraged to follow it up in, in writing. Okay. And so in, in Alabama, you're not excused by referring it to someone else. You can't say, I, I told the principal about it and the principal didn't call and therefore I'm off the line. So bishops and, and people in church callings, and it may be even men, young men presidencies. It may be in a young women's president. You know, I, I think that a, that, a, that a civil attorney could say, hey, you're the church leader. You're in charge of this Laurel, and she told you she was sexually abused, and you didn't report it. Um, that church leader in many jurisdictions can be subject to two types of penalties for not reporting uh, rep suspected abuse they were supposed to. 
One is criminal liability, which means they could be charged with a crime and found guilty and go to jail or have a fine. Um, the second thing is they can be sued civilly by the victim. You didn't report. I'm going to sue you personally and the church. And so you, Bill, when you were a bishop, could have been sued civilly or you could have been put a criminal charge against you if you mishandled child abuse. Now, the problem, the issue with clergy is there also it's complicated by the third type of, of, of mandated reporter is clergy, because there's some circumstances in most states that you have to report abuse and some where you can't. OK, and so here's the issue. OK, confidential com communications between a parishioner or a person that's expecting confidentiality in most states um, if the bishop, if somebody comes into the bishop's office and say, I feel really bad about something, you know, I molested my daughter. Um, that is confidential information you cannot report. You cannot disclose that to anyone outside of your ecclesiastical authority. And even if the, the clerk in the office next to you overhears that, he cannot divulge that because it was sent in a confidential setting. Now, most victim advocacy groups that are, you know, deal with child abuse are not asking for that law to be overturned, that the priest, pen, you know, the priest parishioner privilege is just like attorney client privilege. It has to happen in order for us to say, you know, I need to be talked to my my bishop because I want to go to heaven. You know, I want to, you know, so now the bishop, you know, can say, hey, you need to guy, you molested your daughter, you need to call law enforcement. That's fine. Now, if the daughter comes in and says, my dad molested me, that's not a confidential thing that happens that he has to report that. If he finds out some other way, the mother comes in and says, I think that my daughter's being molested by my husband. Or the Relief Society president says, you know, I oversaw so-and-so doing something to his daughter in the, you know, in, in the back room. If he finds out in any other way than in a confidential thing with it, he has to report that. So it's very complicated. So we do need to train bishops and people on the difference between that. And it varies by state law. Not every state has the same type of reporting requirements. And so each jurisdiction, each country, I'm just talking about the United States, and you have international listeners, each country have different rules. So the local clergy, if you're going to think that you're going to be able to have confidential you know, communications uh, that help somebody repent, um, you know, before you have your first one, you should have bishops training before that tells you what to do about this. It's unfair to put a, a bishop in, in on day one in a room where someone might come in and not know this stuff because Bill, you yeah, could have lost your house. You could have lost yeah, your I retirement. Think this is crucial. You could have right. lost everything. I, I, you could be sued for right. millions for disclosing something you shouldn't have or not reporting something you should have. I want to protect right. bishops. I want to protect bishops. I, I, you know, I, my hat is off to them. They do this wonderful work. I mean, I can't praise bishops enough for all they do, but it's unfair of the church to put. And then when they call the hotline, we know now that the church tells them, get your own legal advice. The, the calling the hotline is for the church to figure out what they've got going, try to give you some advice. But there's a case out there apparently that, that I won't talk about, but I don't know enough about it. But that currently McConkie may not be licensed in every state. They may not be be able to give competent, you know, legal advice in states they're not licensed. So, you know, and, and the church makes it clear that you need to find your own lawyer. You know, especially if there's you know, there's comfort, you know, there's another podcast that, that you know had a, a bishop on it that talked about, you know, a conflict between two people around that. And that's basically what he got at. You know, this is a, this is an internal issue between the two of you. 
You know, so if a, 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 a ward member accuses you, Bishop, of, of not reporting something you should have reported, you better have a lawyer. Wow. To me, that's amazing because you're right. As, as I served as a bishop, there was a video, um, maybe 20 minutes long, maybe a half an hour, that talked about how to handle abuse. Um, I remember our stake presidency showing or having us watch that video one time. Nobody ever, ever, in all the stake training that I went to with all the other bishops sitting around with the stake president or one of his counselors, in all the conversations, maybe twice tops was the phone number mentioned, and only once was the video shown, or did I watch it? To take a lay, untrained leader and put them in the position of mishandling that due to the fact that they were not trained properly, that just seems like such an unhealthy dynamic to place a leader in that kind of a space. Um, I, I can, I'm just, as I'm sitting here talking, I'm thinking back to all the training sessions we had. Nobody ever, because they're not experts either, right? The stake president's not an expert. His counselors aren't an expert. Nobody knows what to train anybody on. And so somebody hands a letter down from the top and says, you know, go to your bishops and ensure that they are familiar with these materials. Well, for the stake president, he's like, yeah, let's talk about it one time. Let's move on to getting home teaching numbers back up. These things are not important and nobody's stepping in to say like, here's how we make sure the training is adequate. So I'm sure that there are a few wards or stakes that did it right. My guess is though that 98% of them are not doing it in an adequate way as to protect those leaders from essentially unknowingly committing criminal activity in a way. Yes. And, 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 and Bill, this preventing and responding to abuse the church issued in March 2018, a couple days ago, you know, says that, you know, we needed to do training, you know, that it asks wards and state councils to, you know, go over this material. But in this material, it never said what I just told them. It never, you know, differentiates the ability of what you have to report based on, you know, if, it, if it's confidential privileged information or if it's not. It's not in there. And the problem is, Bill, that, that the handbook, the references, you know, it says make members aware of these publications, re- preventing and responding to ch- spouse abuse, um, preventing and responding to child abuse helps for members. Um, in another place, it talks about um, um, look for handbook number one, look for, uh, abuse, helping the victim. I tried to log on to there yesterday when in an interview with, with Natasha and it asked for my LDS account and I put my information in and it says, you're not authorized to see this. And I'm an active member. I mean, I go to church. I'm a nuanced person, but I go to church every Sunday. I'm, you know, I have a church calling that involves, you know, I'm the committee chair of the Boy Scouts in my, my local area. So I, I have some responsibilities for youth, and I can't even ask to access the materials that this says that there is in there. Now, the bill, I think it's negligent. And as a professional, I'm saying that from my professional comp, you know, background. To put a bishop in day one in an office saying you're a bishop now, now you can, you know, you know, there's going to be a line of people outside your office that want to talk to the new bishop and share their story on day one that they haven't been screened to see if they're on the central registry or they have a, a history of child abuse, that they haven't been trained in mandated reporting, 
in dealing with domestic violence, in dealing with these, th- these um, other kind of areas, to be able to tell you if a child, you ask a child, you know, are you living the law of chastity? They say, I don't know what that means, what to do. Now, if you just follow the regular instructions and on the temple recommend, do you live the law of chastity? The answer is no. Well, then what's the question? Okay, the interview's over or no? Well, what's the problem? You know, they don't know what to do. And these, these interviews around uh, missionaries and that, the new missionary interviews bill is so problematic because it asks them to delve into everything they've ever confessed. And it has no reference to say, you know, Bishop, some of this might be trauma. You know, when you ask a, a woman, have you ever been touched? It doesn't differentiate between, you know, her wanting to be sexual with her boyfriend at 17 and, you know, having her father molest her when she was four. So it, these things, before you're going to have day one sitting in the office, I think it's negligent to not require that kind of training beforehand and screening. You know, the community of Christ and some of these, other, you know, if you want to be a youth service worker, you have to go through and, and, and um, go through all these, all these, uh, um, these trainings and you have to be credentialed and you have to get back from the organization that you're good to go before you have day one. You know, in the Boy Scouts of America, in theory, you're supposed to be, you know, have a, you, you send in your application, you give references, you go to a background check, you know, you're, you're supposed to have go youth protection training, and you have to have that certificate in to even send in your, 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 um, your application to work with children. And so uh, before day one, they've che- allowed you to be able to be a Boy Scout leader, which the church follows this, for, we still do some Boy Scouts. Um, before day one, they've done some background screening. Now, the church doesn't get those results. We do none of that, Bill. Not for bishops, not for you know, young women's leaders, not for primary workers. We're, there's no way when the church says in its, in its statement in, in February of on approach, how the church approaches abuse, it says, as we learn ways to be more efficient, effectively decrease potential for abuse, we implement them. This is standard process in all, almost all other, you know, substantial faith that we do this, and they're not doing it, you know. And when he say, when, they, when they say they know of no other, we know of no other. We, they say this on page um, on the last page. We know we are unaware of any organization that does more of the church to stop and prevent abuse. But you see that you, it's easy to claim that if you're not listening to any outside source giving you advice that you're not giving any validity to anybody else's opinion outside of yourself. Like if, if, if they're not listening to other voices say like, hey, these mechanisms aren't healthy, it's easy to claim in one's ignorance that you're doing it the very best that can be done. Um, as I'm sitting here listening to this, like you're right. Like to place a leader in a calling without any research into whether that person has got past criminal activity – without any training to that leader so that he doesn't end up, again, like you say, losing his home, losing a civil lawsuit, even possibly having some kind of criminal charge because he had no clue how he was supposed to handle these situations by the church that called him not training him. You use the word negligible. To me, unethical, uh, unhealthy, um, and, and just deeply problematic. The I've got two more I want to talk about, and in this one maybe I, I don't think you're necessarily the uh, going to have some kind of expert advice on this one, but I think 
you can at least speak to why this is important because I, I'm sure this is the case in the organizations that you've served with, with the child advocacy groups. But one of the things the church doesn't do, it never apologizes. And, and that in and of itself is an issue, but it sets up another issue within this paradigm, which is when it releases um, this updated conversation about preventing abuse— it's left in its tracks an older revision of that paper, as well as an older original video that all this stuff stems from. The church has a tendency to never eliminate these past pamphlets, brochures. Uh, the good example is the LGBT policy that came out in November of 2015. You have one thing in the handbook. You have this new added paper that is handed out to leaders a week later. And what is the chance that some leaders don't keep those two together and that future leaders called after that leader only refer back to the handbook and now we're back to the original uh, handbook change, which was very misunderstood according to LDS leaders, and now the clarification doesn't exist. It seems like in these issues... There are so many materials floating around, and so many of them are outdated and old. And the church has done, if I can be honest, a piss-poor job of eliminating those old materials, ensuring that its leaders only work with the most um, recent publications, and giving leaders a list of what those are and what the dates of those are, and to instruct their leaders to toss out everything that's behind that. Your thoughts may be on just the the chaos that occurs when we're all not working with the same information. Absolutely, Bill. It, it's difficult. We need policies that are dated. We need policies, Bill, that are available to the general public of the church, to, to the members of the church and to the public. I'd, I'm not an expert on this. I don't know what, you know, if there's another organization that has their internal policies on how to manage these things that you can't, see it unless you're a bishop. I mean, in this, in this document, Preventing Responding to Abuse, and it says these links, you can't, you can't go in and see this. They're, they're handbook one. Handbook one, you're not allowed, you can find old versions of it hacked on the internet, but it's not available to even members of the general members of the church. So our policies about this bill are even hidden. They're secret. Much less, we don't, you know, you know it's the Oaks famous quote that, you know, we don't apologize now, that might have been limited in scope, but it, it's very clear that the church doesn't go back and say, hey, we got all this wrong, and we've learned more. Now, they try to say that, you know, as, as, as things in society have, have, have progressed, we've learned. They say that a little bit, but they don't, they don't apologize. Um, Bill, there's so many people who have been hurt by these things. You know, I would love the church to have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You know, to be able to have say, hey, if you've been hurt in any way by this, come forward, share your story. Here's somebody that's representing the church that's outside of your ecclesiastical authority that has to sign your temple recommend tomorrow um, that will hear you and say, you know, we're sorry. I would want the church to have dedicated financial resources to help victims that aren't based on a non-disclosure agreement. You know, not get back to the bishop thing, but it's apparent. It, it may be apparent now that I think the church was trying to sign an NDA with her. You know, and so 
the church, I would love it that the church would call publicly in the church news and ensign and conference in the, in, you know, in, in the, in, and say, if you have had experiences in the past where a church leader or church leaders or someone from the church, you know, mistreated you in some way, we want to know your story. Let's publish those stories and see what we can learn about them. Now, the problem is liability. You know, the church is scared to death of liability. And I think it's concerned that it's going to admit something and then it opens itself up for lawsuits. That may be the case. But if the church is done wrong, then they need to repent. (laughs) You know, they need to take responsibility for wrongdoing. And truthfully, people are less likely to sue when you come and say, hey, you did this wrong. It hurt me. And they say, I'm sorry. Ouch. Yes, we did wrong. This is what we can do to fix it. Can we help pay for the counseling? Can we help do that? They're less likely to sue. So, yes, and we don't we don't say we don't say we don't go back. I mean, in my stake, you know, the, the, the bishops have been prevented from handing out miracle of forgiveness. You know, they're prevented. They're, they're, and I don't think they're handing out, you know, Kimball's love and lust, you know, but love and lust is still referred to as a resource that talk by Spencer W. Kimball, where it talks about, you know, just a number of things that most members of the church and most leaders of the church don't agree with anymore. And we just outdated thinking about masturbation, about homosexuality, about, you know, sin and, and so forth that, you know, about, you know, if you don't, if you didn't struggle, it would be better to die than to be raped. Um, all of these kind of things um, are still referred to in one of the resources on LDS.org on how to help teenagers for parents. So we do need, a, what I'd like the church to do is say, yes, we have a problem. We've, we've, you know, implemented this preventing and responding to abuse for right now for immediate. This is what we're going to do to change things right this minute. And this is not the end. We're going to do a thorough review. We're going to invite people from outside the church for professionals to review our policies, to review our trainings, the mental health professionals who work with abuse and and domestic violence victims to review things and, and to develop training. And then in six months, in a year, in two years time, we're going to revamp the whole thing and come up with a new process of training and, and vetting and doing background checks and so forth. We're not there yet. It takes some time to get there, but we're going there. But in the meantime, this is what we're doing. And in the meantime, if someone's been accused of, of, of using a child, yes, they're not going to be in their calling. It doesn't mean they're excommunicated, but they're not going to be you know, teaching primary. Yeah, all of that is great. And, and you hit on two things. One is that the healthy mechanism that has been shown to work in other agencies outside of the church is to get the best experts in the field to get professional voices from outside of the institutional authority and allow them to point out what that institution is doing wrong and to make suggestions of changes that will be taken seriously and implemented. The church doesn't do that. And, and, or if it does, it they would don't argue. Tell us. If, they do, if they do, they don't. Right. Tell or us. if it does, they don't tell us. But we don't see any fruits of that, right? We're right. not seeing. We don't see the changes come in a uh, procession that seems to indicate that there's any kind of conversation like that going on. Or if it is, they're not taking those uh, suggestions serious enough to implement them, right? right? And if that's the case, the church is making it clear. And again, I may be stepping over my bounds in saying what is not provable, but it seems to indicate that the church values its authority and it's really scared that if it were to say, like, look, we're doing the best we can, but we don't have the Holy Ghost and the spirit of discernment and Jesus's personal visitations 
in a way that we've told you so much so that we don't have the ability to navigate what's right and what's wrong, what's healthy, what's unhealthy on our own with the spirit of discernment, with the Holy Ghost, with personal visitations of Jesus, so much so that we need to invite outside voices that don't have those things because they're better at pointing out where we're messed up. And so that so my guess is that as much as we plead with the church to do that, it's going to resist that move at every turn because what matters most to the institution, if it wants to perpetuate itself, is to maintain that authority. And again, maybe I'm venturing too far out into speculation to say that. The other thing, you brought up miracle of forgiveness. I, I wrote it down as you were talking about the answer before that. If if the miracle of forgiveness is generally agreed upon that, hey, we're not publishing it anymore, we're not recommending it, there are things in there that President Kimball regretted writing, and we now know in 2018 contains some really deep, unhealthy ideas around sexuality. One example is that masturbation leads to homosexuality. Um, if that's the case, I would be a homosexual because, like all boys, I was doing that as a teenager as well. Um if we're not recommending it anymore, but we never go back and say out loud to the membership, that book contains things that are unhealthy, that that better research, more information has shown to be inadequate and at times deeply harmful in sharing, reading, talking about, thinking about, processing. If you never have that conversation then as you go forward and leaders continue to use it because they assume that it's okay, then as an institution, we are deeply accountable and responsible and negligible when that book leads to perpetuating or causing any kind of abuse. Absolutely. Absolutely. We need to take responsibility for things. And the funny thing, Bill, or the tragic thing, Bill, is that the theology we have is one of continuing inspiration, continuing restoration, line upon line, precept on precept, here a little, there a little, you know, a new way of looking at things. You know, you know in a few limited circumstances, McConkie said, you know, we, 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 we spoke from a limited worldview and now we know better. So there are examples. I mean, the, the, when Wolfwood when Woodruff said, we're, we're not going to do polygamy in this way anymore, you know, at least publicly. You know, there are ways that we've fundamentally changed. And, if, and as you've said, Bill, if you do a deep dive into almost any aspect of church history or church doctrine, it's changed. You know, we didn't talk about masturbation early on because it wasn't a thing, you know, but now we do. You know, now we can talk about it differently. The, the, the tragedy, Bill, is that we that we have a potential in our theology, in our, in, in our religious tradition, to be able to say, yes, we're learning new things, and we're growing, and we're, we're realizing that this part was part of our cultural construct, and it was part of the cultural construct of our leaders before us, and now we're, that we disavow that piece, or we've moved on, we see things differently, and here's where we're going to go. And it doesn't seem the church does that easily. You know, it doesn't seem that it's able to really come out and say, yeah, this is the new thing. They just bring out a new version of the, you know, of, you know, um, you know, for the strength of youth. Um, if you went back and look at the ones from, you know, 20 years ago and so forth, and it talks about then it's inappropriate to wear um, skirts while shopping, you know, and you show that to youth today, they just laugh, you know, and all of us laugh because, uh, you know, but 
the reality is we just bring out a new one and we don't say, hey, we've changed. And so I think to be healthy, we need to be able to say, yes, we can move on. We can become better. We can involve authentic voices in dealing with this issue. An authentic voice bill is a commission that includes people who are victims. You know, the church, when this woman comes out with a bishop from bishop, she should be a part of the, the, the commission that evaluates the church's response to abuse. And her voice should be there, and she should be able to say what she can say and put it in writing and have members of the church see her recommendations and to see whether they're implemented or not. That's the way that we can go forward. I just challenge right. the church and, to do and, it. Yeah, and if, we, if we're so worried about membership perceiving that we're not what we claim to be in terms of our access to truth and good information from God— and if we're if we're deeply concerned about always painting the world as being in the wrong while we've got the right answers, you're going to see what you've always seen, which is that the church is so slow and resistant to truth and righteousness outside of itself that it can never give space to that. It almost white knuckles onto the rails of the good ship Zion and holds on for dear life, um, concerned that if it ever were to grant that the world might be ahead of it or that um, it may not have the right answers, man, it just, it scares me, Tim, that the church is so resistant to validating the true uh, insight, the, the healthiness, the better perspectives, the new ways of understanding, uh, even just un just even allowing the data to come in so that we can understand the numbers, so we can begin to process why things are happening, the resistance to that in order to maintain authority within this institution, it scares me because I want Mormonism to be a safe place. I There's so many people out there who are critical of the church that they want it to just burn and die. And, and I don't want that. I want this to be a healthier place but in order for it to move at a pace that I see worth recommending this space to other people, it has to be open to admitting that the world gets things right that it doesn't, and it has to be open to listening to those voices and then implementing it when it seems that the world has a perspective that is healthier and actually improves um, the uh, prevention as well as the support of those who are abused. Absolutely, Bill. I agree with you. Um, I think that we do need to acknowledge the baby steps that the church has taken. We need to help them to understand that they can say, yes, we've gotten some of this wrong. Yes, we can you know, involve other people. We can involve authentic voices. We can involve professional um, 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 who, who know how to do it. We can look to what other churches have as part of their sanctuaries, their their um their thing and I, I can provide a list of, of other other churches and their child protective policies and how they vet people and so forth. And they're 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 light years beyond what we've done. The church in this last piece, you know, that was released in, in, in March just a couple of days ago, March two thousand eighteen, did do some good things. I mean they did say it's possible for another person to be involved in the in a youth interview. And that, you know, now it says invite and I'm not sure who's doing the inviting. 
And so that's a change. And so, you know, there's some bishops around the country who had parents come in and say, I want to sit in with my child's interview, or a child say, hey, I want my young men's president, or my young women's president in there, and the bishop saying, oh, no, you know, you can't be advancing the priesthood because you're defying my authority. Well, that's been changed, so that's good. It also says that, you know, here that we encourage members to never be in, to remain in an unsafe situation or abusive, it's abusive or unsafe. That's a change. Because in the past, bishops have felt like they had their job was to keep relationships together. You know, it says that you will call the hotline and you will report the abuse and you will follow the law. And that's a a restatement of that in a more formal way. And so that is really good. They've also said there's some places where they're asking for too deep leadership in, you know, in both in, in, in youth activities and in primary and so forth. That's that's that is new and that's good. Um, it doesn't fall. It doesn't even come up to the level that the Boy Scouts of America are having. You know, it, there's still differences in what they're saying there, and there's no way to monitor, you know, how well we're doing or to train leaders and that we need to do this or requirements for them to go through background checks or so forth. So we've got a long way to go, but we're they are listening. You know, the first statement that the church came out with Sam Young was we're not changing anything. Well, now they are baby steps changing things, but it's not enough. And this is frankly a disappointing response. It is definitely not from my perspective, you know, the gold standard, you know, that when, you know, that they, that they say that we know no of uh, no other organization that does more to protect. Well, I just can't see how, unless you haven't, they haven't looked at any other organizations, how that someone could feel that there's any veracity in that statement. We want the church to we want the church to be better. We do. We want the church to be better. There's many people who will find great great value in the church and its community and its teachings and doctrines and and it is it can be a wonderful place, but it needs to be a healthy place. And it's 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 wanting to go that direction, but it's got a lot of work to do. Yeah, and I want to hit on those. Uh, I want to hit on what you just spoke to, which is the church's response. And, and I want to talk, I want to spend a few minutes on that. But I want to hit on this last mechanism in Mormonism, and I think the most dangerous one. Um, when when we're in a group setting, it's almost understood that sexual abuse just isn't going to occur. Not that it never does, because it does. I, I know that as a bishop, there was an instance where a young man inappropriately touched a young girl on a church trip where there were multiple people in a vehicle. Okay. And you would like to think that nobody would be would be ballsy enough oh, no. to to make that move. <laughs> oh my right? gosh. <laughs> Confident enough, courageous enough, and I don't want to use courage in a positive way. I mean it in the most negative way there is. Um, to to have this idea that they could get away with something like that in a group setting. But so I'm not dismissing that sexual abuse occurs in group settings. It does. But generally speaking, sexual abuse occurs when somebody in power and authority of some sort. It could be a family relationship of an older sibling. It can be an adult, a grandparent, an uncle, a mom or dad. It can be a teacher. It can be you know, whoever. In this instance, we're talking about church leaders or even church members in a calling of authority, like a primary teacher, which to a primary kid, that teacher has power and authority. There is an unequal relationship, an unequal balance of power. Most sexual abuse, almost all sexual abuse, occurs in one-on-one settings. The church, like you pointed out, is one of the last religious institutions in 2018 to have as its general status quo 
to have lots of settings of one-on-one interviews. This Joseph Bishop at the MTC, he's the president of the MTC. He absolutely is encouraged and and taught and instructed to go and have one-on-one interviews with lots of people. Mission presidents out in the field, bishops, stake presidents. Um, we we set up, and I, and I want to hit on, I'm going to let you speak to this first, but I also want to hit on how this changes healthy boundaries for that person going forward to where in unequal balances of power and authority, people the rest of their lives will also place themselves in these situations because they were taught in Mormonism that it's okay. So let's first hit on just directly that leader, that person in the one-on-one interview. One-on-one conversations is a deeply unhealthy space for abuse to occur. You say we're one of the last religious institutions to have that mechanism. Would you speak for a moment about one-on-one interviews and what what the data tells us, what the statistics say, and what your own personal thoughts are on that dynamic? Well, the one-on-one interview is a very difficult situation for an untrained lay minister who has ecclesiastical authority and responsibility over the other person. The other person's coming... And before you finish, and and thinks they talk for God, and thinks that thoughts in their mind come from a heavenly being. Right, thinks that they talk for God and and so forth. So both the lay leader and the, the person coming in to talk to them will think that they have that kind of spiritual um, guidance and so forth. Now, I'm not saying that, that bishops can't be wise people and can't, you know, listen and give, you know, and, 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 and offer advice and, you know, and kind of pull some new piece out of the scriptures that might be helpful. Absolutely. There is pastoral counseling. Um, but, but bishops aren't trained as pastoral counselors and pastoral counselors really have a big responsibility. I mean, there there are licensed professional counselors and licensed psychologists and social workers who are pastoral counselors who have training not only in clinical work, but also in pastoral care. Um, they're rare. There's some churches who have those, you know, and, 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 that, and the complication of, of how they have to go on, on boundaries of what the organization expects and what the person's beliefs are and so forth is, is a very delicate road to, to, to walk, even for the claim, trained clinician. So the problem is, is when we put all that confidence in this, this leader, and then they go off and ask us questions or don't interpret that, yes, I might have been abused or don't even understand that. Or when they come in, the, the, the teenager comes in and talks about something that happened that they're upset about. And then they say, well, you need to repent. And then only later when they've gone to a therapist, they realize that this was sexual assault and rape, you know, and it just is so fraught. Um, we're wanting instead to teach the value of, of, of individuals and being able to discern for themselves, you know, based on their wisdom, their connection to their view of the divine, where they need to go forward in life and to give them professional resources to help those that are, that are practiced within their competence. One of the things is as a licensed individual, we need to do and we state as part of our ethics is we only practice within our competence and we're, we can lose our license for not doing that. Do bishops lose their calling as a bishop for practicing outside of their competence? How do we evaluate that? 
you know, if if we can't help a bishop to teach in the church to teach, you know, consent, you know, to teach a child that they don't have to give Aunt Susie a hug if they don't want to, when they go in for a a, a pediatric exam, that that once they're able to toilet themselves, that they can give, they have to give permission for the doctor to examine their private parts. If they say no, the answer is no. And if if when you know, some adult needs to do that. They're giving permission. It's okay for the child to tell everybody at school that this is exactly what the doctor did. And here's who's in the room. It's not a secret. You know, we, when we don't enforce a child's boundaries and a child's ability to have consent, and we don't respect someone else's internal position. We set them up for feeling that, that, um, to, to being, you know, exploited in, 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 in other areas. In, um, we know that child sexual abuse of victims are much more likely to be re-victimized both in sexual abuse and by sexual assault um, later in life. Um, uh, Bill, I haven't mentioned the adverse childhood experience studies, the ACE studies. It's one of the, one of the most substantial epidemiological studies done by the Centers of Disease Control in this country. And there's over 40 Jan, uh, articles published in 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 uh, refereed journals about this data set that talks about what happens to you in childhood as these adverse childhood experiences sexual abuse physical abuse having a, a mother treated a parent treated violently uh, having parents that are you know addicted to to substances um, 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 and a number of other things that can happen as a child the adverse experiences that go down the lifespan. As a matter of fact, almost every leading cause of early death in adults has a dose-response relationship to adverse childhood experiences, as does the, your likelihood to have mental health problems, being addicted uh, to, to, um, to, to drugs, early sexuality, um, even things like diabetes, even, Bill, to the number of days you're going to miss work from the back injury. It's unbelievable how much effect, you know, what happens to you in childhood if it's not treated can have. So we're not, the church doesn't talk about these things. Um, the church doesn't, you know, when it doesn't enforce boundaries, we've, it, it sets people up for problematic um, things. If a child is abused in childhood and doesn't get the help, their life can really be difficult. They did this data set. And a friend of mine, Rob Anda, who was one of the researchers who does this, you know, he said, when we looked at the data set, we looked at the old age group and they didn't have very much abuse. Then they looked at the data very clearly. The problem is the ones that abused weren't living anymore. They died. Bill, child maltreatment has direct implications on almost every social problem we have in society. I give a presentation about that. We don't understand how pervasive this is, how important this is. If we don't want our child, uh, a church member at 30 to be addicted to drugs, they need to be able to, to get help for the adverse childhood experience that they had it for. Mm. I, uh, we, we've gone into detail here about the way in which we do things and those mechanisms that are in place and their institutional mechanisms. And you're, and you're pointing to the travesty of, of just how much, give me a second. It'll ring two more times and it'll go away. 
it's long before we open, but once in a while somebody still tries to call. The the travesty of the mechanisms that are in this institution and, and the far reaching implications they have. We were we were I was talking a minute ago about how I wanted to talk about one on one interviews with the leader in that moment in the space for abuse right then and there. But but we don't even realize like if we train, if we teach, if we instruct our our children, our young men, our young women, our young adults, that one-on-one interviews are safe and that you can trust the person in this room of authority and they speak for God and you can you can believe in that with your whole heart. The risk is also there that that person has now set up an unsafe boundary that they will carry on through the rest of their life. And they have set themselves up now so that when they go to BYU, it's a young lady, she's 22 years old, she's at college, and she's dating this newly returned missionary. And so now she puts herself in an unsafe position. Her, her brain tells her, her gut tells her that, you know, I don't feel really comfortable in this, in this space with this young man by myself. But her experience tells her that this young man is a priesthood holder. He, he went out and was righteous and, and served the church. He's in a position of authority because he's the elders quorum president in his singles ward. And this young lady goes in the rest of her life and thinks of these boundaries based on the way in which she's been taught and grew up. And I don't think we realize all the tentacles that these institutional mechanisms have, that's just one of them. And I could sit here and go over two dozen instances where where we put ourselves in positions we normally wouldn't. We step outside of safe boundaries um, and put ourselves in unhealthy ones because that's the way in which the institutional mechanisms of the church taught us to trust and believe in. Um, I want to I want to start wrapping up with a section here. I want to talk to you. So the church puts out this um, re-emphasis of their document of preventing abuse. You and I have already talked about some of the good things that come out of that. You mentioned the idea that now, if a third, you know, if the if the interviewee feels uncomfortable, they can request a third person to be in the room. That's a that's a great baby step. Um, you spoke to the idea that the church now is discouraging leaders from encouraging people from staying in abusive relationships. I think that's a, a huge step um, because it isn't always been that way. I've been part of conversations where I've seen church leaders encourage a wife who is being emotionally abused constantly with some other types of abuse present to just stick it out as as they try to get this guy some help. Um, the, one of the other things they talked about is no child should have to endure abuse. Even one case is too many. Um, they, you also mentioned earlier that they make mention that most abuse cases are true. Even Maybe not all of them, certainly not all of them, but that most abuse cases are true. I think that's a great acknowledgement. I think most people, because of the media, we've been, we've been trained by the world around us to believe that there is a high number of false allegations and I think we have to come to grips that the reality is far and wide, it is an extremely high percentage of these allegations that end up being true. Um, so we want to we want to give the you know uh, applause and accolades to the to the positive steps being made. But let's also now spend some time. Would you just 
help us understand where these fall short and and more importantly as we kind of wrap up will you go into what you think more could be done and and what it is that is what it is that has to change if the church is really truly going to be a gold standard absolutely thank you bill and i agree with that we need to recognize some of the positive steps in there and 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 we need to to, to do that so um Basically, I think the church needs to be able to revamp the the whole process of of teaching about uh, how to protect children and and adults um, to look at its training and its materials and to look at its policies and how it goes forward so we we talk about you know no one on one adult youth. Um, interviews. Now, the policies went that way, but it says a person can be invited. I don't know who's doing the inviting. I think it needs to be clearly stated that if we have these interviews at all, which I think we don't need, um, that, that the youth can have someone else in the room of their choice. And that if the youth doesn't want someone else in the room of their choice, I think the bishop needs to have someone else in the room. So there's not one-on-one there. Um, it just protects the bishop. It protects more, uh, you know, it protects the youth and so forth. Now, there will be a few times when a youth can come to a bishop and say, hey, you're the only person that I trust and I'm being abused. Well, that can be a great place for a person to get some help. When that happens, the, the bishop needs to learn and be trained that they don't do their own investigation that they report it to the authorities and that they refer the, the child and the family, to, I mean, the, the child to competent mental health, health um, um, resources. Each stake and each bishop anywhere in the church needs to work with the professionals in their community and they can reach out. You know, in the United States, you can ask the National Children's Alliance if they've got a children's advocacy center in your area and and you can reach out to professional organizations to find out who has training. They need a list of competent therapists and mental health practitioners in the area that know how to deal with these abuses, these situations, you know, as a follow-up, you know, for counseling. They need to know how to refer them to the community resources to get the investigation done. Um, bishops need to be trained before they even start their calling. They need to be vetted. They need to have background checks. They need to have extensive training on how to do this work before their first day, that, before they're ordained, you know, before their first day in, in a bishop's seat. You know, the counselors need the same thing. Stake presidency members need the same thing. We need to, you know, make sure we're following the too deep leadership policy in all church activities. Um, it, it makes a nod toward that, but there isn't a process of training youth workers in the church, people who are called and com- to primary scouting, young women, um, nursery, um, and the people who are over that on how they'll be trained on how to spot abuse, how to spot violations of our standards. You know, in the Boy Scout program, there's a video you watch, and there's an example of a scout leader who's saying, you know, to a, to a youth, Hey, let's go. I can show you where there's a, you know, a beaver dam, you know, and is about to walk down the trail one-on-one with a boy. And another scout leader comes up and say, Hey, wait, 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 you know, remember 
And so we don't have those kind of trainings to be able to tell other, you know, members of the church and larger leaders what our policies are and how we can f- help each other follow up on it. You know, it may be like, you know, this girl needs a ride home from, 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 you know, young men's, young women's, and there's no one there to take her. Well, okay, this is not my child. How do I, how do we watch out to say, oh, look, we all need to remember we're not going to drive them home one-on-one because that would be one-on-one. How do we get around that and have places for us to evaluate how well we're doing? You know, so having training for, 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 for youth workers, for bishops, and to have that having to have the, to redo every year, have reporting processes, having ability for us to see where there are close calls, where they're saying, hey, we didn't really follow the process here. What did we do wrong? How could we do better? Um, you know, we're, we're beginning to put doors and windows into rooms with, with uh, youth in them. I think that needs to probably apply to a bishop's office um, as, as well. So we need to make our environment safe. In the scouting and young women's program, we're, we're getting out of, of the of venture scouting and, and making that a young men's activity. We don't have guide for state scouting that applies to to you know older youth who are not involved boys who are not involved in the scouting anymore. We don't have background checks for that. We've never had it for the young women's side. So we need to implement a process where we have those kind of, of background checks, assessments, training. And, 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 and have that competency before someone's called. I believe that we need to have more comprehensive training in the church about our curriculum. Our curriculum needs to be able to talk about consent. It needs to talk about child abuse. It needs to talk about um, these types of, of um, um, these types of abuse and domestic violence and train. There are good training programs out there and it can be put together that we can do a better job of picking that part of our curriculum. We can look very closely at what the church does when a allegation of abuse comes in. In the past, it's been fairly clear that part of the church's concern is how it's going to look and it's, it's, it's legal responsibilities, whether it's going to be sued, you know? So instead we need the church to be able to say, this is where a mistake was made we're going to talk about it publicly. We're going to see what we can learn from it. We're going to talk, reach out to the victims. We're going to support them, and we're going to learn from this. We're not going to hide it. You know, so no, no, no more non-disclosure agreements. None. You know, if the church has to pay out money and they sued, they did something wrong. Well, they, that's repentance. That's restitution, Bill. The church needs to follow its own, you know, um, faith repentance. <laughs> you know, we need to have, we need to do restitution on, on our own. So the church needs to look at its process of doing that. Now, the helpline can be a good thing, you know, to a certain extent to help people figure out what the laws are and so forth. We don't train bishops all those ways. Yeah, that can be. But there's not a helpline for victims. There's not a line for victims to call and say, hey, I've got a problem. The only problem, the only way that the church has it is the ecclesiastical lines of authority. You talk to the bishop. You talk to your home teacher, he talks to the eldest grown president, talks to the bishop, they talk to the stake president. The stake president has a problem, they talk to the general authority. Uh, or maybe Salt Lake. The problem is each one of those chains, once you get to the bishop and the stake president, are involved in your ecclesiastical evaluation. Being a separate process 
outside of the ecclesiastical line of authority to investigate issues, especially when a church leader is being accused of doing something wrong or not being unsupportive or, or so forth. So that, that, that the person responsible for signing your temple recommend isn't also the one that's hearing that you have a problem with the bishop. Um, and we need authentic voices involved in evaluating the, 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 um, the policies and procedures of the church and also experts from inside and outside the church. We need a public process that we're, we're seeing them do these things. We're seeing recommendations. You know, like I said earlier, we great this church news to, to every week, you know, um, evaluate another time when things didn't go well and what we can learn from it. Um, but that requires us to have vulnerability. Um, we, we, we need a process where the church can be accountable and can someone can go and say, hey, you harmed me. Here's someone who can speak for the church to say, I'm sorry. We need resources set aside, not just fast offerings from a local congregation, but real resources to make sure that every victim of child abuse, domestic violence, sexual assault, um, whether it happened, you know, you know, who's a member of the church or had it, something affiliated with the church, has resources, regardless of their ability to pay, to get competent help. And it doesn't need to go through LDS social services necessarily. You know, it needs to go through competent people in the community. Um, we can do a great deal for to, to make that happen and make it better. And we need to, as you said, go back and look over all of our materials and pull back from materials that aren't what we believe anymore. And we need to look at our sexual shaming um, and our, our ways that we're, we're – we're fascinated or, or we're, we're just so in depth looking at needing to be sexually worthy and the whole oh, the sin next to murder and so forth. Um, that now certainly we need to teach consent. You know, if someone is raping someone else, they don't need to be, you know, into church calling. They don't need to be a member of the church. We need to warn about that. Um, but this whole different thing than having, in normal sexual exploration and, and, and kind of normal developmental things like masturbation, we need to change the, the narrative. Yes, someone is doing grievous sin when you're taking sexually advantage of someone without their consent. That's a grievous sin. Um, but right now it's only, uh, e even rape is only, you know, something that may require disciplinary counsel. Whereas being involved in a same-sex marriage is, you know, is apostasy and requires it. Um, you know, we need to look at our LGBTQ issues and how we treat uh, children around those issues because there are, you know, and, and, and issues around gender identity and expression. We, we, we have so much shaming that goes around these ideas of sexuality and gender and gender roles and so forth that uh, is, is hurtful. We need to take a look at that. That's a start. Yeah, and and as you go over each of those, and I don't I don't mean this harshly, but I, it, it's going to come across that way. The church has, and again, I think it's revised this uh, official um, piece from the newsroom. But the church originally claimed it was the gold standard. That's the words it used in handling abuse. It, it actually, actually and, Bill, it said that uh, the first one that came out in February, it said. Um, um, the exact quote that I, I usually re use in here is um, 
that let me just see if I can read it. It says, um, well, I'll start with the previous sentence. Well, I'll leave the whole paragraph. It's under the church comprehensive efforts to prevent uh, abuse and protect children. Because members of the church consist of people who are imperfect, imperfect, most of whom are trying to improve, there's no perfect flawless system. The church works tirelessly to prevent abuse and protect children and constantly strives to improve in these areas. And here's the quote. We are unaware of any other organization that does more than the church to stop and prevent abuse. That's, I think, what you're talking right, about, the which, gold standard. Yeah. So by, by your own understanding of you serving with these advocacy groups and and the things they've come up with, I mean, just looking at what that organization, those organizations have done. In other churches, too. This falls way short. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it is unfair for the church ever going forward until it rectifies the things we're talking about to claim it does this issue better. I mean, if anything, and I, again, I, I don't mean this as criticism, but it is. I do mean it as criticism in the sense that we have to own it for it to get better. I don't mean it as criticism in terms of like, I only want to do this podcast so that we can point out all the problems. I, I want this thing to be healthy and safe and to improve. Mormonism has to come to grips. The the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, along with many of its its off-branches, including like FLDS and, and other groups, we have to come to grips that we handle sexual abuse probably the worst. And we're in that low 10%, you know, that section of the statistics and how we handle abuse. We're not in the top portion. We're not handling it the best or the most appropriately or the most seriously. You laid out a bunch of things. And I want to say here, as people listen to this episode, I think, Tim, you laid this out so well. I hope this is an episode that listeners will consider reaching out to their friends and family, but more importantly, to their bishop, to their stake president, to other members that are in leadership positions and say, hey, would you mind listening to this? This is an authentic conversation about how we as Latter-day Saints handle sexual abuse, the institutional mechanisms, and to consider what Tim and Bill are talking about today and, and to see if there's anything we could do better and if we can just own up to where we fall short. You laid out that our training is inadequate. We need adequate training. We need to make it clear what resources are current and which ones are not. You laid out that we need to develop a healthier conversation around worthiness and around sexuality. Um, You talked about that the general rule needs to be that there should be at least three people in that room. And I think that one of those three should be somebody that the interviewee trusts uh, to be part of that interview, not just two adults necessarily, uh, because there are times where even two adults can abuse somebody. Um, I think having somebody that that interviewee trusts as a third person to bring in, and that being the general rule. And like you said, allowing the exception for the kid who goes to his bishop to say, hey, bishop, I trust you, and the problem is with my parents. The problem is with my uncle. The problem is with my primary teacher, and I want to I talk to you first about it to have room for that one-on-one conversation. Um, you talked about windows in the doors. You talked about um, having other safeguards in the building, uh, not just a ward clerk in the next building over. By the way, as a bishop, we had a white noise speaker installed in the bishop's office, and I think that's a church-wide thing. And if if the conversation is unhearable by the person in the adjoining room, then you haven't eliminated by having him there 
that space for abuse. That person needs to be able to hear the conversation. And there, but again, I, I, I'm probably going to stammer here. Yes, there needs to be a safe space for somebody to confidentially talk to the bishop. But I think the general rule is that somebody else needs to have access to that conversation to ensure that there's nothing unhealthy being said there, that there's no abuse taking place. You talked about a victim hotline, that the church should have some way that is publicized, that all members know, that we'll have to, that we need to have a victim hotline or some other way in which members can reach out to the church. This has to be publicized. It has to be understood by all the members that this is the number you go to. This is the email address you send something to. This is the website you click and you click contact us where members of the church know like if there's a problem, if somebody's been abused in these three or four ways, that I can reach out to the church and that somebody will take seriously uh, my allegation. Um, you talked about not having non-disclosure agreements, that when abuse happens, yes, we need to take care of the victims financially and seeing that they have the resources to care for themselves, but that also we don't hide that abuse, that event, that experience from the rest of membership so that we can all learn from these things as they happen and we can come up with better safeguards. It bothers me to death, Tim, that the church all along the way had this lady's accusations, uh, allegations in the Joseph Layton Bishop Jr. case. And the only time they actually took it seriously is not even when the audio leaked. It's when public opinion started to sway. And only then did they seem to take this lady seriously. That, to me, shows that this institution is incapable in some of these situations of taking abuse seriously. And, and its concern for the victim may be there, but it's not only secondary, it is far down the list from the priorities above it. Um, and you also talked about having authentic voices, voices from outside the institution that are able to point to the mechanisms, policies, procedures in the church and say like, hey, these aren't healthy. In 2018, uh, we as a world have determined that these things get better results in protecting victims and in supporting victims. And we recommend that you make these changes and the church take those recommendations seriously to the point where you and I begin to see these things implemented at a rate that shows that they're listening. Um, I want to wrap up here, and I'm happy to give you time if there's something else you want to cover, but, but I think we've laid out that the church is not doing an adequate job of handling abuse, that there are a lot of things that are really simple fixes that you've named, and that if the church continues to go forward not doing these, then it's also culpable if it hasn't been already, it certainly is now culpable in that abuse as it happens if it chooses not to implement these kinds of procedures. Um, anything else that you want to add, Tim, before we kind of close out? Yeah, a couple real quick things, Bill. You did say about the one-on-one -on -one interviews, the interviews with, with bishops. I think our gold standard, what we want to work for, is to make worthiness and checkup interviews about how people are doing you know, a thing of the past. Um, there's other ways to evaluate whether someone wants to participate in the church and wants to go forward with certain things that don't require one-on-one -on -one interviews or interviews at all. Um, and when there ever is an interview, even if somebody comes in and says, look, I need to talk to the bishop, that the bishop needs someone else in the room, you know, to, so that it's not just one-on-one. -on -one. And so those things. Also, I have set out, and I can give you as a link if we want to do it later, you know, recommendations on what church members in their local ward can do to make a difference. 
We don't have to, Bill, wait for the church to make changes. We can work with our own stakes, our own rewards, our own labels of responsibilities to make changes in our own, how we practice Mormonism in our own area and not wait for the church to catch up. Um, and we can do that. I mean, parents can say yes, and we can train children that you have the ability to consent. You don't have to have interviews with them. You don't have to go in there at all. You can, we can encourage young men and young women's leaders to give uh, lessons about, about child abuse and how to recognize it, about consent, responsibility, and respect. We can, um, we can require that we're not going to vote for somebody that is going to be the new young, you know, primary, you know, president unless they've had a background check. Um, we can encourage in our own areas um, that what, you know, we can seek out professionals in our own community to come and, and talk to our, our areas. There are many professionals in the world and, you know, the Mormon Mental Health Association and many of us, we're willing to go places and, and to talk. We, you can bring your own speakers in. You can bring your own training in. You don't have to wait for that. You can create a way outside of the ecclesiastical lines of authority within your own stake to report things that are going wrong. And, and you know, the state president can appoint somebody to look into it. I mean, we, we can do much of the things we're asking the church to do ourselves. We can take back our authority. And so that's very important for us to do, to take back our authority. And it tells children that they do have the ability to have consent, that they're responsible. They're res- they can be responsible. They can act out. They can walk, speak up for themselves. And that's what we need to do. And so as we do that, we, can, we don't have to wait for Salt Lake. We can make changes in our life. We can, we can read the stories on Sam Young's page. We can share our own stories. There's actually a new, a new piece that's coming out that's not about children's stories. It's about you know, adults with um, you know, domestic violence that's coming out. It's a story place where we can list stories. We can learn from them. So let's take our authority back, Bill. Let's make Mormonism in how we practice it in our own way come up to this standard and not wait for the church to catch up. Bottom up, we don't have to be top down. Beautiful, beautiful. At the end of the day, what's, what's most important to me, and I know it's just been a lifelong service of yours, what's most important to me is that we prevent abuse, that we take care of these folks, and, and hopefully they never become victims because of what we do. Like we've changed things like you say in our own life, and we've encouraged the system to change so that we prevent abuse in a real way. And then when abuse does happen, that we do all that we can to support these people and to help them with the resources they need to to adjust to that the best that they can and to have the resources needed to be able to lead a productive and happy and healthy life. Tim Burt, I, I am just grateful for this conversation that we've had. Um, I think the world of all that you've just added to this, and and I hope this becomes an episode that people reach out to others and say, hey, would you just listen to this? Listen to the two of these guys talk and see if this makes sense. See if what they're saying feels right. And if it does, are we willing to make the changes to be healthier, to be more preventative of abuse, and to be more supportive of those who are abused? Tim Burt, thank you so much for being on Mormon Discussion today. And I just think this is a, a monumental episode. And so thank you for being a part of it. It's an honor, Bill. Thank you so much.